For those of you following along on uh, Facebook Live, uh, we just published a little bit before the service began, kind of an order of service there you can follow along. And no, it is not a typo. The message title this morning is, Indeed, I Scoop Dog Poop. So, uh, just bear that in mind as we go through. Uh, Dirty Jobs was a TV show uh, on the Discovery Channel. A guy named Mike Rowe hosted that show. It started uh, and ran for eight seasons. I think the last season was in... uh, in 2012. And uh, Mike Rowe did an interview on TV one time, I think the interview was in 2008, where somebody asked him about the least favorite jobs he had done in that Dirty Jobs show. And he mentioned several. The first one he mentioned was sewer inspector, and the sewer inspector's job was in the city of San Francisco, which is known for its hills. And so you can imagine how inspecting the sewers in San Francisco might have been a little problematic from a stench point of view. And then he said uh, one of the least favorite jobs he had was snake wrangler. He said these were they went looking for water snakes. You had to catch the snake. You had to make the snake vomit, and then you had to look under a microscope at the at the at the snake vomit to make sure it was a healthy consistency. I don't know what that means exactly, but nonetheless. And then he said one of his least favorite jobs was shark suit tester. You can figure out from the name exactly what's going on. A shark suit is a relatively new invention. It borrows from an old-fashioned suit of armor, and it's made of a lighter-grade steel and a much smaller weave, of course, than old-fashioned armor. You put on the suit, you hop in the water, you create kind of a bloodbath of bait for the shark, and then the sharks come in and you let them bite you. If you live, the suit works. If you don't, well, it's unfortunate. And I guess from his experience, the suit worked, although he did say he had several bruises and weird parts of his body after that particular experiment. I've been out walking recently, and part of my walk sometimes takes me past the Timmerman Elementary School. And I was walking one day, and I looked down, and there was a sign. You know, those little signs you can stick in a yard that tells people uh, some news or whatever. And this sign said was an advertisement for a business. And the business sign said, I scoop dog poop. And as I was walking away, I thought, who in the world would sign up to not just have to scoop the poop of their own dog, but to go looking for other dogs' poop to scoop? And yet somebody apparently has done that. I think for a lot of us, there are some jobs that we just won't do. And I think for a lot of us, there are many jobs that we cannot do. So today, as we look at the culminating episode in the Gospel of Mark, the resurrection of Jesus, we're going to find that the resurrection is God's unconditional guarantee of Jesus' saving work on the cross. And Jesus chose to, because he loves us, take on the dirtiest job possible. He chose to do it. And the resurrection proves that he was capable of doing that job. So I want to invite you, if you have your Bibles in front of you, to turn to the Gospel of Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. If you're on the website and you're watching this, just to the right of the video, there's a tab that says a Bible. You can pick a translation and then there's a tab for the, the, the Bible book and the chapter. And you can use that to navigate to Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. So let me just read that for us today. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? 
But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him, but go tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. The first thing we need to note on this Easter Sunday morning is the absolute fact of the resurrection. It was a historical event, as historically verifiable as the crucifixion itself. In fact, throughout the entirety of our time in the Gospel of Mark, Mark has been weaving his record as a continuous presentation of truth, verifiable, go check it out for yourself kind of truth. There were, of course, a couple of alternate theories offered up about the resurrection that began to circulate back in the day and time of of the actuality of the resurrection. One story was that the that was circulated, and this account is in the Gospel of Matthew, that the body had been stolen by the disciples. Now you remember the disciples, right? I sometimes call them the remedial boys, because they had a little trouble getting things right. These guys could not organize lunch on their best day. And so by now, they have been scattered by fear of torture and by pain and, and fear of pain. And now we're supposed to believe that they snuck in among a Roman guard, who, by the way, would have been required to forfeit their own lives if they lost their charge, even if that charge was a corpse. We're supposed to believe that they had snuck in among the Roman guards and stolen the body of Jesus. Just not true. After this initial stab at the stolen body theory, no Jewish, Roman, Greek attacker of Christianity ever disputed the fact that the tomb was in fact empty. Or, nor did they identify an alternative tomb where Jesus' body remained. The theft was, theft was never shown to be possible, never mind true. Another story that circulated. The women went to the wrong tomb. They were so befuddled that they went to the wrong tomb. Listen, Jesus was important to these women. They didn't mess up. My uh, dad's mom, my dad's stepmom, my grandmother, is buried in a little cemetery in uh, Massachusetts. And I know exactly where her grave is, on a little corner, just as you round the corner heading west in the cemetery. It's a small grave marker, but I know exactly where it is. Why? Because she was important to me. It was important to me to know where she was buried. These ladies, these ladies, Jesus had been the most important person in their lives. They knew exactly where he was. They didn't go to the wrong tomb. An author named Lee Strobel, who used to be an investigative reporter, wrote a book called The Case for Easter. And he says this, that this incident, the resurrection of Jesus, was the most investigated incident in all of world history. And those who have taken the trouble to actually chase down the story have come away concluding that, in fact, that Jesus, who was buried on Friday, was resurrected on Sunday. A guy whose pen name was Frank Morrison wrote kind of a seminal work in the early 20th century about this. He called, Who Moved the Stone? If you have doubts about this in any way, shape, or form, I commend to you either The Case for Easter or Morrison's book, Who Moved the Stone? And Paul, the Apostle Paul, in the first Corinthians passage that 
Pastor Laura read for us, challenges people. He says, listen, there are hundreds of people around who observe the reality of the resurrected Jesus. If you don't believe me, he said, go ask them. So with that in mind, the actuality of the resurrection, the event that we celebrate on Easter Sunday morning, what is the meaning? What, what, what do we take away from the resurrection? The first thing we take away from it is it authenticates the work of Jesus as our Savior. Paul, The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1, verse 4 says, Jesus was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. The resurrection is so integral to Jesus' work that not only did he experience resurrection, but in the Gospel of John chapter 11, Jesus himself says that he is the resurrection. The resurrection is God's unconditional guarantee of the work of Jesus, and there's no fine print. Jesus' work on the cross is sufficient for you. You can take it to the bank. I'm always amused these days whenever I buy a piece of electronic equipment. Almost immediately after you go to place the order, this thing pops up that says, do you want to buy the extended warranty? What are they really saying? They're saying that we're not quite sure the stuff we just sold you is going to last as long as we said it was. Well, there's no need for some alternative external warranty with Jesus. He is the guarantee. His resurrection is the stamp of approval on the work that he did for us on the cross. And that that changes everything. It changes it changed everything then and it changes everything now. Think about this. Back then, that initial group, those women, those ladies who went to the tomb of Jesus, they were bewildered and they were scared, Mark says. But Matthew says this about them. They were, as they began to ponder the reality of the resurrection of Jesus, they were in Matthew chapter 28, verse 8, they were afraid and yet filled with joy. As the resurrection idea sinks in, joy springs up in their hearts. As the resurrection sinks into our lives, joy should spring up in our hearts. It changed them from being terrified and feeling abandoned to knowing the real joy of the real idea, the real truth of the promise of the resurrection. By the way, just as an aside, and I'd step aside, except I'd be out of view of the camera, which maybe you'd like prefer. But anyway, as an aside, we need to note the presence of the women here in this passage as the first witnesses to the resurrection. There was an ancient Jewish historian named Josephus, and he records the attitude of that culture in that day of time towards women in his book, Antiquities. He said this, this is a quote, let not the testimony of women be admitted because of the levity and boldness of their sex. Jesus dumps all of this on its head. When these women are called to be the first witnesses of his resurrection. Listen, just as an aside, no one has ever loved, treasured, and valued women more than Jesus. So then, continuing on in Matthew chapter 28, the ladies, they ran to tell the disciples. They didn't walk. They didn't stroll. They didn't saunter. The first Easter parade was these ladies running to share the good news. That's what we do with life-changing news, isn't it? We, we, we run with it. So that was the impact for them. Now, later for us, we have a more complete picture of the resurrection, and it changes everything. It changes our relationship with God because we are now united with Jesus 
Paul in Romans chapter 6, verse 5. God is no longer some distant personages. He, he's up close. He is personal. He is also not resident just with us, but according to the Gospel of John, he is in us. John chapter 14, verses 19 and 20, Jesus says this, Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. If we are in Christ, he is in us. And by extension, it changes our relationship with each other. By extension of our union with Christ, we are united with each other. I sometimes refer to uh, Christians' uh, gatherings as kind of a gathering of weirdos, strange people. And you might not think you're a little weird, but trust me, if you ask somebody who knows you and loves you and really cares about you, in a quiet moment, they'll tell you, yes, in fact, you are weird. But listen, in the gospel, God has brought together this union of, of all of us weirdos, all of our little peccadillos and particularities and whatever, and he's brought us together into the body of Christ, a unity that we are called to, to preserve. Why is it important to Jesus that believers be united around this truth? Because it is a way that we say to the world, this resurrection stuff is true. I can remember when I was in, uh, in Zamb Zambia in Africa for my second mission trip there, a friend of mine and I, James, uh, we joined a whitewater rafting trip down the Zambezi River. We had been told that it was high water season, so the crocodiles uh, wouldn't be out, but unfortunately the crocodiles didn't get the word, and there they were on the banks as we were going by the river, just watching us go by. Them, along with the swimming cobras that swam on top of the river. Anyway, in order for a whitewater raft to move in the right direction, at the right time in the right way, everybody has to be in rhythm as they row as you're paddling. And so the, our guide who was standing in the back of the boat kept trying to give us like a cadence so that we'd stay in tune with each other as we were rowing. And we always were a little bit off-centered. And I'm thinking to myself, who's the wacko that's not paddling right so that we're always kind of off-centered from where we want to be? Well, later on, we saw a video of our little escapade down the river, at least a portion of it. And it turned out that the wacko who was not paddling in sync with everybody else was me. And this just demonstrates the, the, the reality of the fact that you and I and the body of Christ, we're supposed to be paddling in the same direction at the same time. The resurrection also changes our ultimate destiny. We have to look forward to a physical resurrection of our own with a new body in a new heaven and a new earth. I can remember the first funeral that I did as the pastor of a church. It was for, for a deacon who was, uh, who was part of the church. He was an older gentleman. And uh, I only knew him when he was older. And he had been, the entire time I knew him, he had been, uh, his name was Don. He had been pulling around a little oxygen bottle with him. And he was always hooked up with the tubes so that he could breathe better. And then at his funeral, I realized this. He is dragging around that oxygen bottle no more. And at the moment when he gets a resurrected body, it's going to be perfect. You and I have that to look forward to. And you and I will get a, a, a new residence, that, that eventual residence, as I mentioned a moment ago, the new heaven 
and the new earth, which according to the Bible is going to be visually stunning, streets of gold. But better than that, better than the physicality of the place, better than the stunning appearance of the, of the place, is that you and I get to be forever roomies with Jesus. And all of that should change our outlook on life. It provides what Peter calls in his first letter, a living hope. These are interesting days, this coronavirus pandemic, this COVID-19 disease and you and I, as believers in Jesus, we ought to be the ones who are marked by hope. This is not a hope that everything is going to magically work out the way we want it to in this day, in this life, in this time. That's not the hope. The hope we have is this sense of the presence of Christ in us. The hope we have is this bonding together in the body of Christ. The hope that we have is this sense that no matter what happens here, God has prepared a place for us. Jesus said that. I go to prepare a place for you. So meanwhile, back at the poop. I was at my physician's office a couple of months ago, and we were, she was looking over my record, and she realized that it had been over 10 years since I had had my first colonoscopy. So now you can probably figure out my age from that, which is okay, I guess. Anyway, so she said, you know, we need to think about uh, scheduling that again. And then I mentioned to her that I had had a a test when I lived in Oklahoma that's uh, put out by an outfit called Colaguard, which is, uh, well, we came to affectionately call it the poop in a box test. And so she said, well, if you want to, since you have good results, if you want to, we can, you know, do that Colaguard test, that poop in the box test, if that's what you want, if you would prefer that. And I said to her, uh, a doctor, has anybody ever said to you that they would prefer a colonoscopy? Really? And then she thought about it for a minute. She said, hmm, no, I guess you're right. So we need to face the reality, folks, that there is a lot of, I'm going to use this word, crap in our lives. The Bible calls it sin. And because he loves us, Jesus chooses to do the dirtiest job, cleaning out the crap. When we first turn to him in faith, he does the big cleanse. I mean, the, the big overhaul cleanse on us. And then day by day by day, you know this as well as I do, day by day by day, you and I, we accumulate more crap. The Bible calls it sin. And daily, he, he, he cleans us out and enables us to stand in fellowship with him and with other believers. I don't know about you, but I know that I will never choose to scoop dog poop for a living. Jesus chose to scoop all of the sin out of our lives. And the resurrection proves that he could do it and that he did do it and that he keeps on doing it. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this truth from your word on this resurrection morning. And I don't know about those watching, Lord, but I know that in my life, there's a lot of crap, but I'm so thankful to Jesus that he chose to do this job of cleansing me because he loves me. And the resurrection proves that he could do it and he did do it and he does do it. Amen.